friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and from all of us here at the Catholic Association, from all of us at Conversations with Consequences, we wish you a very, very happy Thanksgiving, and we'd like to say that we're very thankful for you our listeners. I know we talk a lot about dignity of life issues, especially vulnerable pre-born human life, pregnant moms and their babies. We talk a lot about that on the show on Conversations with Consequences, but it really is an issue that galvanizes us and it should galvanize every Catholic because in a world where the most vulnerable are discarded and, and are made part of that terrible throwaway culture that Pope Francis talks about, in that world, how can anything go right? What can we expect from a culture that's sacrifices their own babies on the altar of sexual liberation. Yes, we do spend a lot of time talking about these things. We do so because we are really moved, moved for the plight of babies, the plight of their mothers, the plight of their fathers and their extended families, and the plight of our whole culture, which suffers terribly from the blight of abortion and has since 1973, when it became legal because of Roe v. Wade. We've asked Archbishop Joseph Nauman of Kansas City, who serves as the pro-life chair for the USCCB. But first, I'm happy to have my TCA colleague Lee Sneed with me as we chat with Dr. John Brachalski. He is OBGYN, a pro-life OBGYN at Divine Mercy Care and Tepeyac Clinic in the D.C. area. He serves so many women and babies as an OBGYN, also travels across the nation sharing a pro-life message and helping women choose life. Lee, thank you so much for joining us today as co-hostess. Before we bring Dr. Brachalski on, I'd love to chat with you about one of the many things we have in common. We're both adopted mothers. And our experiences are different, but I'll talk about mine first. I have three sons, all adopted domestically as newborns. I have a 16, almost 17-year-old. And then after he was born, we adopted twins. Um, nice. and I sometimes I, I do hate to share my story as much as I love to preach the joys of adoption to anyone interested because it wasn't very long. It didn't take us very long to, to get matched with a birth mother. Um, in fact, it was about six weeks with our first, between our first meeting with the adoption agency, getting chosen by birth parents, and then having my newborn baby in, in my arms. Six weeks. Twin, six weeks, about six weeks from the first meeting. And then it was about one to two weeks before the due date that we found out we'd been chosen. And so that's amazingly, it was amazing. And then when we actually worked with another Catholic medical hero, uh, Dr. Hilgers for a while, and then we spent some time abroad and we just still weren't getting pregnant. And I thought, well, you know, we took a break. And I thought, well, maybe we should get going again. And my husband said, you know, this is actually great not having to worry about this month to month. Let's just adopt again. We, we love our son. Let's just adopt again. And we did. And 48 hours after we had turned in all of our background work and paperwork, et cetera, I was in the delivery room. No. Being born. <laughs> yeah. 48 hours. So it happened fast both times. Wait, I so Lee, you, were, you saw your children being born? The twins, not the first. That's um, spectacular. He was about 12 years old, I think, maybe 12, 12 hours. 
12 hours. Yeah. I have a sadness in my I love my adopted daughter and I, I give thanks for her day and night. And I'm, I, I feel sad that I didn't know her for the first months of her life, that I wasn't at her birth, that I wasn't in the beginning when I first fell in love with her. I thought about this all the time and it hurt me that I wasn't there for her. Now, I, as I see her developing so well and so beautifully, I don't think about that so much, but definitely it was it was a sadness for me. So I'm, I'm really happy that you had them right from Thank the beginning. You. That's very, yeah, very nice. It's always relative too, because like, so you had that experience to compare with your biological children. For me, I didn't have biological children, so I wish that I had sort of known them in the womb, uh. you know, and been able to be with them from the first moment. And I mean, although we like to say they were in our hearts, there's something about, there's something very physical about a mother-child relationship, especially in those early days. And well, and, and for me, I was lucky that I worked with a wonderful lactation consultant and a lot of women don't know it's possible, but I was able to induce lactation. Were you really? Yes. And, so and, the, and they were, and they were newborns. To cooperate with you finally. And they were newborns because I, I, I know sometimes people try to do that with older babies mm -hmm. and that's very difficult and it's I think it's a, maybe a little hard on the baby who's <laughs> been drinking from a bottle too. that Beautiful. process the process of falling in love with your children and having your children fall in love with you for you maybe it was a little different because they were newborns but many moms mm -hmm. by adoption and fathers by adoption we do this uh, when the children are a little older and it's it's really a lovely process it's very different from the from giving birth and, and receiving the children as newborns or right from our own bodies but it's so pretty and I was actually talking to my adopted daughter is now 14 and uh, on the way to school a couple days ago I was telling her that yeah. adoption is the way that God relates to each of us by that's how he chose to relate to us he adopts right. us and he makes us his children through adoption I was telling her you see it is such a lovely elevated dignified noble thing that God chose it God chose that as the vehicle by which he would communicate with us. He would make us his own. And so I'm sure I've said this to her before, but I, I think it really registered this time. I told her, you know, you're a very special girl because you have your birth parents somewhere and I'm sure they love you and think of you all the time and we pray for them and they pray for you, I'm very sure. And now you have this relationship with us that is very, that it mirrors the relationship of God mm -hmm. with his children, with his human children. Yeah, and I think that's a story that needs to be retold to our children over and over again because, you know, they're, they mature so fast and they're little minds and their souls change all the time and they relate to that information in a different way. So yeah, I think it only gets better. Now the reason, Lee, that you and I wanted to talk on the show about this particular topic about adoption is because October is Respect Life Month mm -hmm. and adoption is the loving option as my daughter was holding my daughter was holding a sign on the side of the street a couple of days ago. <laughs> my son did that too. Yeah? He said, yep, he said adoption is a loving option. It's the same sign. Yep, all his mm -hmm. friends actually handed him that sign when they all went down to the pro-life march. <laughs> yeah, and it's such yeah. a beautiful sign because truly, once you have an adopted child, once you know an adopted child, you realize there are no extra children. There are no unwanted children. There are no children that ought to be destroyed. You know, every single child is this perfect gift from God. If mm -hmm. only we can find the grace to receive them. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah. let's hope that October Respect Life Month, there's lots of demonstrations, lots of thoughtful dialogue about what's better. You know, I had this talk with somebody. I invited a, a lady. A woman I know, I don't know her very well, but I invited her to, to go to the march with us. This was a chain for life a few days ago that's held all across the United States. She said to me, you know, I would never personally, this is a very common refrain, I would never personally have an abortion, but, you know, I worry about all those children that are born and then abused. And maybe it would have been better for them. And I said to her, she didn't know I had an adopted child at the time, so I said to her, well, you know, there's other options. There's more options than death or abuse. I said, there's adoption, for instance, like, you know, my daughter. She goes, oh, I didn't know. She said, you know, 
right. You're right. I'm going to come to that March. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's wonderful. Good evangelizing. <laughs> that is good. Evan- yeah, I think we need to change hearts one at a time and try to create that culture one person at a time. Create the culture where abortion is unthinkable. And that adoption is always celebrated because I've had people even say, when I say like, oh, all my children are adopted, they'll say, oh, I'm sorry. Oh. I'm like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> are you kidding? It's the best thing that has ever, ever happened to me. And, you know, I, I like to think it's pretty good for them too but (laughs) I'm sure it's wonderful for them so anyway it's just so I think that people have some ideas that are stuck in the past with maybe some bad practices they've heard a few horror stories and it tarnishes the whole beautiful practice well you know there's always there's humans involved in it so there's going to be mistakes and things are going to go wrong sometimes but for sure it's the loving option Lee it's really wonderful talking to another adoptive mom about these beautiful concepts I hope that our uh, our listeners are moved by our experiences me too I love talking about adoption. I could talk about it all day long. You know, now let's bring on the phone Dr. John Bruchelski. He is a physician and OBGYN extraordinaire. He heads up the Tepeyac Clinic in Northern Virginia, and he is also the man behind Divine Mercy Care. He's an OBGYN who has devoted his life after his conversion to making the world of OBGYN a world that is completely welcoming to the child, sees the child as a patient, sees the mother and the child as a unit in fact sees the mother and the whole and the father and the child as a unit sees the whole family so let's talk to Dr. John Bruchelski. Dr. Bruchelski, we were so happy to see that the University of Notre Dame awarded you with the Evangelium Vitae Award <laughs> for next year. And my husband, Carter Sneed, wrote in the press release. I, I have to say, too, I have to interrupt myself to say that I can't tell you the number of text messages and phone calls I've gotten from people in this community who have been patients of yours, who have had babies delivered by you, who are asking me to book them seats and I have to remind them that I don't work there but I will, I will try to get them to the best I can I'll direct them to the you're dealing with anyway. a superstar Lee yes I know oh um, please yeah I know so anyway people are dying to get to you so my husband wrote in the press release Dr. Bruchowski is a shining example of the church's untiring commitment to directly serving mothers children and families <laughs> Your work is such a vital component to our pro-life commitment as Catholics, and your work, Doctor, has been spurned on by your own conversion. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, Lee, thank you so much uh, for the kindness. Uh, Sometimes I get a little uh, awkward with uh, being honored for not uh, killing babies and trying to care for those (laughs) who are weakest in our community. And with all the people that I've delivered, because I'm so old, it's all paid advertisement, as they would say. (laughs) And uh, so I'm really humbled and just overwhelmed. I'm a poster child for the uh, Catholics uh, growing up since the 1960s. All the goods and bads of, um, of what that means. I've uh, lived through that, including buying the drinking the Kool-Aid or buying the lie that women deserve abortion as health care. So I wanted to liberate women from their fertility to give them happiness and joy and peace. And I ended up practicing what I preached because you know, my daddy, uh, who was an incredible man who loved the Lord, loved Our Lady, loved the church, loved, loved our country, he also taught in, in a high school the very principles. Well, because I believed in a woman's right to choose, I went ahead and uh, learned how to terminate and abort all size babies, provide all sorts of contraception. And it was only because of my mom and dad, I think, who dedicated me to Our Lady, but also so many people 
out there, so many of the incredible pro-life movement, those people who are just silent, they prayed for conversion, and thanks be to God, through circumstances that I cannot even imagine, but through patients and through other doctors and through other people and through students, I came to my senses where I had an experience with the Mother of God a few times in my life, and all of a sudden, the truth became alive, and it was always about consequences. The convert, you know, I I love the program, Conversations with Consequences, right? (laughs) Well, it's now about the conversation of conversion, but it's not with words. It's with your heart, and it's with your actions. I see what your program does, Dr. Christie. It moves me to the point that these people put their heart, the love of Christ, into what they're doing. Oh, thank and you, Doctor. And that's the key. Oh, no, I'm, I'm serious. So, uh, I'm trying to prep. I, I was looking just at who you had on and whether it's the heartbeat bill, which is politics, or whether it's servicing, which is, you know, social, you know, psychiatry. You talk about people who have heart in their work, because once again, words have a very difficult meaning these days. We, mm-hmm. we, we oh my God, mercy. It, it means different things to different people. Women, I can't even use the word women anymore. Women. Recently at the hospital, at the hospital, I got hit on, oh, no, these are birthing people, John. And oh. so the whole world's changing. But what does transpire is the love of Jesus. And the best example of that was the mother of God. John, and that moment I, that moment of conversion that you had, it must have turned your entire life upside down. But I also, <sighs> I also imagine that you brought so much beautiful energy to it, like a real enthusiasm. Is that true or am I imagining that wrong? I am sure that you are correct. It's very hard to capture in my heart and in my world words what happened. But I can tell you, I felt loved. I felt loved for the first time in my life. I felt the love of my parents. I felt the love of all these family members who prayed for me, knowing that I was kind of off the rails, so to speak, and I was destroying life and I was hurting women. And yet they just prayed for me. And when you meet Jesus and Mary heart to heart, as St. Francis de Sales would say, or eye to eye, or your whole life changes. And you can never go back, meaning the holes, the pain that he suffered so that I could become whole again and come to know him. And once again, it's not the work I do. It's not the work you do, but it's the the knowledge and the relationship with Jesus Christ. We talk about it here at the office all the time. Health is based on relationships that are sacrificial. Mm -hmm. The relationship between you and your family, the relationship between you and your physician or your healthcare provider, but also the most important between you and Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And ever since, um, what is it, Constantine and his mom kind of introduced this so, you know, thousands of years ago, The world has been pushing back, and it just seems as if we've gotten to a point now where words no longer matter, everything's become fossilized, and it's only going to be the love of Christ and the love of us left here on this earth doing his, building his kingdom come. When you were describing this, the way that you experienced uh, your conversion, it reminded me of of the very real, of the reality that when, when... People who are pro-life, whether we're Catholic or of, of other denominations, when we propose that there is uh, there is a possibility of change, that you can come back from the other side, it's a it's a proposal of mercy, of real love and mercy. And and when when people yes. when we experience it, when when maybe some of us have been on the other side like you and have come back, and, and I wasn't always passionately pro-life. When you experience that that wonderful welcome of saying your past doesn't matter, we've all made mistakes. God's yes. God's merciful 
bounteous love is ready to wash all over you and, and just make you happy. Yeah, no, it's so true. And that in small ways, yeah. too, with, with, with the um, Sacrament of Reconciliation, Catherine Jean Lopez is such a great social media presence to remind us all to run to the confessional every day because, you know, even if you take a little step outside, you want to be back in, inside. And you know, it's possible for anybody. I, I absolutely agree. That mercy and love breeds hope. And that hope, it becomes contagious and it fills your being. When I left the hills, when I left the hill, I heard she said, go show yourself to the priest. And I can tell you that that confession coming off the hill after that experience that I had was the most wonderful cleansing, peaceful <laughs> moment wow. that I can even, and so when I talk to folks, I would love them to come through our offices, through listening to your program, and go directly to confession, because there is a certain consequence. When you talk about conversations with consequences, I think about it, these, this, this conversation is for my consequence. It's, it's helping me have a softer heart for others and to know that I am loved. And I want to share that with my female, you know, I'm a gynecologist, so it's my, with my patients. And it's all about, especially if you're, you know, we're all in need. As, as Mother Teresa told me, oh no, Johnny, <laughs> you, you see enough, you bring Cal you bring Calcutta to Fairfax because <laughs> even wealthy people need forgiveness and peace. No, so you're you're so right. And Catherine uh, Lopez is just a tremendous voice out there in the wilderness for, for so many of us. If you're just joining us, this is Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. We have the great Dr. Bruchowski with us and also my colleague Lee Sneed as co-hostess. But Dr. Bruchowski, you are famous everywhere for the way that you've been able to create an OBG practice with many other doctors that work with you and nurses and and in a way that welcomes the whole woman, all her fertility, all her great possibilities, all the wonderful possible futures of her life, and welcomes her whole family and her husband and the children. And how did you create such a such an amazing place? Um, she told me, the Blessed Mother told me what to do. <laughs> there you go. I mean, I am not, I, I listen to you. I mean, I, I listen to people say this and it had nothing to, I am humbled by it, but this is not something that I came up with. Johnny, be the best doctor you can be. See the least of your brothers and sisters and follow the teachings of my son's church. Once again, people ask me for business plans and it's almost a joke with me because I, business plan? Mm -hmm. This was a matter of just simply following this, this mother to wherever, whatever door they opened. So I knew coming off that hill that I understood for the first time Humanae Vitae. I understood for the first time the catechism. I don't understand how it happened, but I can tell you that there was a deep connection of, the, of what it means to be human. And that also just transpired to my patients, meaning care for the whole person. Don't suppress fertility. Cooperate with it. Cooperate. Listen. It's slow medicine. This is not something that you can do with a quick test or a quick answer. This is about meeting people where they're at. This is about giving them the best, the best advice you can, whether it's allopathic or naturopathic medicine. You present them options. And then you give them good science, and then you allow the Holy Spirit to enter through good prayer, body, soul, and spirit. You work on the forgiveness of parts of your life, and then you just begin to put into play the therapy or the treatment, and it, the good Lord does all the hard work. In our case, 
I just knew that I had to partner with all the different pregnancy centers in the region in order to fulfill the love of Jesus to my community, to build, to allow us to become a vehicle for the power of the Holy Spirit. But that was literally just going to them and saying, hey, send your patients to us. We'll find a way to pay. The first few years, we were for profit. We try to pay it out of our profit margin. But then as, you know, medical uh, issues became, you know, traumatic with malpractice premiums and, you know, government-run health care and the lack of religious freedom, you simply, we went not for profit because I couldn't go back on those three divine, those three commands. I would be disobedient if I did that. And so I encourage everyone out there when they come visit, uh, this is part of the secret of this place. It's be the best doc you can, try to see the underserved in your daily work, and then lastly, follow the teachings of my son's church. And you can't go wrong, meaning it's a challenge, but you can't go wrong. There's peace and joy, and I can go to sleep at night knowing that I've, you know, I've served the Lord today. Because as you said, once you get filled with the Spirit, you got to share it with other people. John, when um, when you you and I understand what we're talking about, Lee understands, I think our listeners understand the beauty of, of Tepeyac and of your work. We are entering into times now politically which are, are more and more fraught. There's less and less understanding of our of our point of view, of, of our holistic point of view that that accepts the entire woman and her children uh, as valuable and, and, and tender children of God. But what would you say, what do you say when confronted with the idea that when a woman is pregnant with a child that she didn't plan or it's unexpected, that she and the child are somehow in opposition? Because I feel that that is the general idea behind so many attacks. You know, the woman is in uh, danger of her life being destroyed by the child in some yes. way. Yes. Oh, oh Grazi, you're you're ap- you're absolutely uh, on the point. One of the principles of Tepiac here is you never pit mom against the baby. You never, because I have to care for both patients, and just like faith and reason, they go together. Now, for the person who thinks abortion is health care, it's brutality and death to the child, and it's hurtful towards the woman either in the short term or the long term. For instance, the rape patient. You know, the act of intimacy or the act of barbarism by the man on the woman is already there. The abortion just makes you going after, it kind of makes you go after the other innocent life here. Mm -hmm. That damage is already there internally. And so what I have found is, is that you never pit mom against the baby. You get, try to get them far, you try to get them both as far along as possible. And that's the key. And as long as you show people good science, whether it's the heartbeat, even though even the heartbeat now, people are getting so hardened, oh no, just tell me where to go to get the abortion. If you are able to show them women who have survived the experience they're going through, plus good science, so it's experiential, just like uh, John Paul would talk about with his phenomenology, but it's also about good science. There's a heartbeat, there's a new life, you know, this we can get through this together. There's a way to work through this so both can win. That's the key I have found over time. It's just meeting people where they're at, re- telling them that there is a 
uh, and more into you know, a, a kind of a healthier way to get through this challenge rather than ending the pregnancy because that only ends the life. It doesn't end all the other issues that brought you to that point. In fact, it might exacerbate them. Oh, I just wanted to ask you about the flip side of that with women who are experiencing uh, secondary infertility, primary infertility, who wish to be pregnant, who are planning to get pregnant and can't. You've got a, a, a program called Hannah's Hope. Can you tell us about this outreach? Sure, sure. Hannah's Hope is a conversation that we have with women struggling for fertility. Fertility is a desire. It's not a diagnosis. Infertility is a not technically a diagnosis. It's a it's a common it's a it's a description. And so we try to bring together the best of medicine to show them real options of how we can help treat underlying causes through NAPRO technology, through surgery, how we can refer people in and out. But also when none of that's working and you're beating yourself up again, you know, you're kind of beating yourself up, not you know, because either, you know, you think the infertility is not explainable or maybe it's due to your own behavior, that the suffering, by leaning into the suffering through prayer, that suffering actually finds meaning. And that meaning can be some of the greatest growth experiences in anyone's life. But you don't come right out and say that. You kind of work with people and accompany them and walk with them. Hannah's hope for us, um, how do I say, we're a mash unit. The mother of God said, Johnny, patch people up and send them back out to the front line. <laughs> so your, your audience are truly the frontline heroes of today. <laughs> the pro-life folks uh, in front of the clinics, the people who pray that silent prayer every day for their family, the mom who doesn't throw out her daughter who either got pregnant or had an abortion, walking with them, accompanying them. My job is simply <laughs> to just patch you up like a, like a forward mash unit and send you back out into the fight. And it's not easy at times, but the Holy Spirit is never outdone in generosity. And I have found that whether you are a evangelical or a Roman Catholic or a Orthodox or a, a Jew or a, or a nothing, <laughs> this approach resonates with people because there's an authenticity, there's an integration, and there's an attempt at listening. And it's like you said, conversations with consequences. Every patient we see, every history I take, every physical exam we do, every lab test we do, it's about conversations with consequences. And we literally know that it's a body, soul, and spirit integrated approach to health. End of discussion. Dr. Um, Berchowski, you know, it's amazing to think of the fortune of your patients, the blessedness of your patients. So many doctors now think of themselves as vending machines, you know, just delivering whatever the whatever the patient wants, whether or not it's good for them. And you you really see the whole you see the whole person and you see them as children of God that's very apparent and thank you so much for sharing your time with us uh -huh. I know that your time Dr. is extremely Christy, valuable you. Oh, you are so kind and thank you for everything and uh, we'll keep each other in our prayers definitely doctor okay. um, thank you doctor see you in April <laughs> And also, oh my gosh, Lee, I can't wait. <laughs> it's, a, it's always a good night. And to our listeners, if you want to hear more, learn more about Dr. B's wonderful work, check out tepeyakobgyn.com. That's spelled T-E-P-E-Y-A-C-O-B-G-Y-N and Divine Mercy Care at divinemercycare.org. And congrats again on your wonderful award, Dr. Bachowski. Oh, please. Th thank you. Uh, God bless you.
Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. We're so excited to have our good friend, Archbishop Joseph Nauman of Kansas City, who serves as the pro-life chair for the USCCB. Welcome to the show, Archbishop Nauman. Thank you. It's good to be with you and, and your listeners. Really, I'm very excited to have you on. You are, as I explained in the intro, you are the pro-life chair for the United States Council of Bishops. I'm so pro-life. It's, it's such a huge part of my life, of, of the way I relate to everything, it seems, in my life. And, and I know many of our listeners are, too. And I want to ask you if you could tell us, please, why is it such an important part of being Catholic? <laughs> yes, well, thanks. Thanks. Uh, we're, we're grateful to hear your passion for this part of the church's teaching. And it's important. And I would summarize it with the reasons why the bishops two years ago said this is the preeminent public policy issue of our time and human rights issue of our time. The first reason is because it attacks life when it's most vulnerable, most defenseless. So that that's the number one reason. The second reason is that it, it attacks the, the family and the bond, the most sacred bond between the mother and the child. And, and our this culture of death pits mother's welfare against the child's life, which is, it's not true that their welfares are intertwined. Mm-hmm. Um, but because it, it attacks that most fundamental of all human re- relationships, the foundation of the family, and, and that's the foundation of our our church, our, our culture, our civilization. And then the third reason is is just the sheer numbers. Over well over sixty one million children killed by abortion since nineteen seventy three. And with each one of those abortions, there the second victim is the mother, because the court in 1973 put all of the responsibility on the woman. Mm-hmm. In in a, deceptively, they were saying, "Well, this is to empower women." But what they effectively did, they, they said, if the woman chooses abortion, the man has no responsibility in this at all. And so, so it's not only the lives of these innocent children, but it scars. And and I've seen this through my experience with our post-abortion ministry, our Project Rachel ministry, it scars the mother and the father and many others that were implicated in it. And it it scars them emotionally and spiritually, and sometimes, sadly, it scars the mother physically as well. I think that that legal abortion has had a terrible effect on our profession, our medical profession. It's it's cheapened our profession, it's it's twisted it, it's degraded our profession, it's it's said that there are some, there are times when a person, a human person, can be our patient and also our victim. So for mm-hmm. me, uh, abortion also is is a terrible blight on the medical profession, which I think ought to be very noble and high minded. Yeah, I mean the fact that we've rewritten the Hippocratic Oath mm-hmm. <laughs> and taken out what even you know pre-Christian culture saw as uh, true evil, and now we rewrite that. So. Fortunately, you know, with our Catholic Medical Association, with the, the students, the new doctors, and we have a mass for them, and they, they take the original oath, and I'm so proud of them. Yes, it, it, that's it, wonderful. It has, it has, right, it's, and now, you know, I think what's 
we're at a new moment where our, the proponents of abortion are no longer satisfied with it being an option or a choice. The rhetoric that they they use for decades to to get people to go along with it, but now they're trumpeting as as healthcare and therefore as a right. And in doing that, now I think it, it's going to harm the medical profession more because they're they're at a point where they're saying that institutions and doctors, nurses, they have to participate um, because. You know, as you know, most most doctors and medical professionals don't want anything to do with abortion, but now they want to make everybody complicit and taxpayers complicit as well. Yes, I've often thought that uh, any time that a person has to be killed, it should be done by an executioner type and not involve the medical profession, whether that's yeah. an abortion or a suicide, an assisted suicide. I I think that I know that the the medical profession is brought in as cover, as ethical cover and moral cover for what is uh, deeply unethical and moral act. No, do you, so you Archbishop, you are the chair for the pro-life committee and this is a spectacularly important year for the for pro-lifers, for anyone who cares about the dignity of life because this is the year that we are going to have a very important test case go before the Supreme Court. It's less than a couple months away that the Supreme Court is going to hear the arguments on December 1st. Are you helping to prepare the parishes to pray for this big moment or to understand the gravity of the situation? Yes, absolutely. And we need everybody to be praying for this. I mean, this is a moment that those of us who've been in the pro-life movement for a long time that we've dreamed of and, and that we've hoped for for so long. And we do have an initiative for Catholics and Christians joining across the country to pray for this. Your listeners can go to Pray for Dobbs, which is the name of the case, D-O-B-B-S, prayfordobbs.com. That will access you to all sorts of information about how you can pray for wisdom for our Supreme Court justices and courage for them because uh, there's a lot of efforts to intimidate them at this time. And uh, for the, the first time in almost 50 years, we have a court that we, we hope that our majority, uh, that if they don't overturn Roe v. Wade with this case, they will empower the states to have more ability to protect innocent human life. Now, as someone who has been pro-life for a long time and has been closely watching all the situation and, and knows a lot about the Dobbs case and the Supreme Court makeup, do you have hope, apart from supernatural hope, uh, that things <laughs> will turn out okay? Yes, I, I, I do have hope. I, I mean, I think when you look at the makeup of the court, it would seem, and but we never know until <laughs> until they actually have to decide on a, a case. And so we have a lot of new members of the court since there's been any major case really taken up. There was the Texas case recently, but they really didn't decide on the substance of that. They, so, But I, I think that was a hopefully a positive sign that when they do rule on substance in the Dobbs case, that will get a good ruling. So I think there's legitimate reason to hope at this time. And, and there's been a lot of prayers and work and effort by many, many people to bring us to this point. I, I think one of the, the great goods that maybe the Lord's brought out of this terrible situation of legalized abortion is that the proponents thought if they kept abortion legal this long that the opposition would have gone away and yet you know i think the fact that this still becomes an important issue in every one of our elections mm-hmm. uh, that it's it's still a, a a question and we see this with the the march for life every year the passion and even a new generation of young people that I think we could argue are more pro-life than my age, their grandparents' age, or even their parents' age. Oh yes, so, I, I agree. I, know, I, so think I think there's a, a lot of reasons to hope. 
There's a couple reasons for that, uh, it seems to me. is Number one, the fact that a lot of these children have been hurt by abortion. These young people, I should say, have been hurt by abortion. Yes. Not necessarily directly, but they are living in that post-legal abortion world where so much uh, so much damage has been done to the relationship between men and women, to the family, to, to marriage. They know they have, there should be 60 or 70 million young people like them that don't exist mm. because they've been they've been destroyed that's number one but also number two is what I do for a living is fetal ultrasound and that kind those kinds of advances in science that have changed so much of our relationship to unborn human life the way we understand it the way we visualize it and we are able to connect much more deeply now than we could in 1973 when Roe was passed yeah absolutely and you know science is on our side yes and, and the technology is on our side as well well, and so you're exactly right. You know, I think the the ultrasound imaging has made the the humanity of the unborn undeniable, and uh, it's been a great help. You know, as you know, with our crisis pregnancy centers, and thank goodness for the Knights of Columbus that will donate these ultrasound machines to crisis pregnancy centers and and give parents an opportunity to see their child. And that's been powerful in saving many, many lives. Yes, I I work for pregnancy centers and I read their ultrasounds. And uh, another thing that it does is it brings the women in in the first place because yeah. they they want to date their pregnancies and it keeps them out of the clutches of places like Planned Parenthood where they'll give you a dating ultrasound but then they, they shuttle you right into the abortionist's clinic <laughs> right next door. They'll give you the ultrasound and they'll say, okay, great, we can do an abortion because the baby's only 11 weeks. It, it really does, the Knights of Columbus have been fabulous uh, with that uh, help. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie and we're chatting with Archbishop Joseph Nauman of Kansas City, Kansas and he's also the pro-life chair for the USCCB. Your Excellency, I wanted to ask you about St. Joseph, the year of St. Joseph, and I wanted to read back to you something you wrote recently. As the faithful protector of both Jesus and Mary, we find in St. Joseph a profound reminder of our own call to welcome, safeguard, and defend God's precious gift of human life. What connections do you think we ought to be making between St. Joseph and his example for us and our pro-life commitments? Pope Francis has given us this year of St. Joseph, and one of the descriptors that he gave of Joseph in, in the letter introducing this year was he, he talked about St. Joseph having creative courage, and I love that. I love that term, and I think that's what we need at this moment as well. I've always been blessed to have St. Joseph as a patron, and part of the reason my, well, the reason my mother named me, my, my father was killed when my mother was pregnant with me. Oh, no. And and so my mother felt, well, St. Joseph was a really good foster father for for Jesus. So she thought that was pretty good credentials for making oh, him my foster father. So um, I've always had a, a great devotion to him. But I think, you know, Joseph shows, you know, true manliness, true fatherhood, you know, in that he's a protector mm-hmm. of Mary and Jesus, and you know, his life is constantly being interrupted. I think he must have been afraid to go to sleep at night at one point because he was getting these dreams with yes. messages <laughs> from the Lord, but, and they would interrupt his life. But I mean, we, he says nothing in the scripture, but we see his actions. He moves quickly and decisively uh, to protect Mary, to protect Jesus, and that's what we need all of us to do today, and I think there's a special message for men 
that we need to exercise this true paternity to be protectors of mothers and children both. Oh, you're so right, uh, Your Excellency. It's such a beautiful example. And, and you know, these days, uh, manhood is barely considered a virtue. And St. Joseph is a, is a person who exhibits that shining, beautiful, noble manhood that uh, can sacrifice itself and, and, and can live for the other completely. What a beautiful example in these days where manhood is not, it's considered toxic if it's talked about at all. Yes, and you know, I think so many of our men are confused by the culture today, and, and we need these great examples of, of being true men, authentic men, and what it means to be true fathers. And as I said, you know, the abortion decision, one of the things it did was it, it stripped the father of any ability to protect his child. And it actually incentivized fathers to encourage the mothers to abort the child because then they had no responsibility. That's a real tragedy. It's wounded mothers, but it's also wounded the fathers as well. Yes, and uh, it's a terrible tragedy when one thinks to know, I haven't known someone like this personally, but imagine that feeling of knowing that your child is going to be destroyed and not being able to defend the child because the, the law has stripped you of that right and the culture has stripped you of that right. You're basically told from right from the beginning that your opinion doesn't matter. You're only the father as though something more important than fatherhood exists. <laughs> yes, exactly. And yeah, and I, I have known through our post-abortion ministry men that suffer from this a great deal that their impotence because of the law to be able to protect their children and to really love the mother of their child as well. We know after abortion, so many of those relationships are destroyed as well. You know, so it's also what it, what, it, what it has done, I'm sure you agree, is that it when the woman, since it's all in the woman's lap, she gets to decide, then if she does uh, bring the baby to life, it ceases to be the man's responsibility because she could have aborted. I'm, I'm talking about irresponsible men here. Yeah, you're right. It's been destructive, as I said, of the family, of the, of the whole family. You know, and it, this is obviously not God's plan, how, what he created as far. And we know, and there's so much data that shows how important the father is in the development of the child. And we're living with so many wounds today in a culture where there's so many children growing up without their father in the home. I grew up in a sig- single parent family, but it was, uh, uh, the circumstances were different than many today where the father has either chosen or they both chosen to not have this cohesive family that is the optimal mm-hmm. environment for a child for a child to grow. So you had the difficulties of a of a household headed by your poor mother who had to be everything to you and to your siblings, but you didn't have that sense of abandonment, perhaps. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I was blessed. I had a lot of good examples, good male examples in my life and family, and also the priests of our parish were very influential in my life. And I think, you know, part of the the Lord can bring good out of tragedy, and I, I, I wonder today if I, if I would have been a priest if, if the circumstances were different, but it was one of the reasons I think I was attracted to the priesthood, because I saw how important the priests were for our family. Oh, that's lovely. It's so true. It's uh, for many for many young people. It's only the priest of the parish is the is the person who gives them that that fatherhood that they need so badly. Yeah. In my life, Your Excellency, I became very pro life when my husband and I adopted our fifth child, and yeah. I realized that this little girl who had been abandoned on the street was that quintessential unwanted person, and. Mm-hmm. 
it, it taught me in a way that that excited me so much that I had to I had to become I became very intense about it that there are no unwanted people and that God yeah. creates everyone out of love and and with a deep purpose there's never there's no purposeless creation do you think that's something that people need to spend more time praying about about how every soul is is, is made with a purpose yeah absolutely and, and you know I think Mother Teresa used to speak about the greatest poverty is the poverty that says we can't love one more child we can't close one more child or house one more child and that each life is a miracle and has a purpose in God's plan that and when we fulfill that purpose the world is better we draw love uh, children draw love out of their parents and out of their families when they're embraced and accepted that's why our crisis pregnancy centers are so important to surround mothers that are experiencing a difficult pregnancy with support and with a loving community and another issue that you know I think is very important in our time and for the church to be involved with is the is the need for foster care parents as well i know in kansas here that's a high priority for us that so many of our children are languishing and oftentimes in the foster care system and we need to raise up adoptive parents and foster care parents and from our catholic communities and our parishes need to surround those families with love and support well thank you excellency for bringing that up it's a it's a very important thing and some of us might be called to foster or to support people who foster and, and we should all prayerfully think about that. So thank you so much for making time for us today. It's a, it's a great honor to have you on and we will go to prayfordogs.com uh, so we can remember to pray for the wonderful cause of maybe Roe v. Wade not being the law of the land uh, and, and sometime soon. So thank you Your Excellency. Thanks, thanks Dr. Christie and, and thanks uh, it's been a pleasure to be part of a conversation of consequence with you. Thanks for great ministry you do on the radio. Oh, thank you. Our honor, truly. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us on the third Sunday of Easter. Last week, as you remember, we pondered the Lord's divine mercy and reflected on Jesus' rehabilitation of the faith of St. Thomas the Apostle. Today, we ponder that same mercy and Jesus' rehabilitation of St. Peter. Peter didn't have the same doubts as doubting Thomas about the resurrection. He was the first to enter the tomb. He saw the Lord enter through the closed doors of the upper room. Together with the other ten apostles, he rejoiced at Jesus' triumph over death, but he still wasn't whole. The obstacle was that he still wasn't able to forgive himself for what he did on the night Jesus was betrayed. Peter sincerely thought that he would die for Jesus. He tried to defend him in the Garden of Gethsemane with a knife, cutting off the ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant. But as Jesus had told him earlier in the Garden, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We would see just how weak Peter's flesh was in the high priest's courtyard, when in response to a conversation with a maid who recognized him as one of Jesus' disciples, Peter denied Jesus three times. He denied that he even knew who Jesus was. That's when the cock crowed. When Jesus was brought out and looked at him, Peter, remembering Jesus' prediction, went out and wept bitterly. The pain of that experience was very much with Peter even after the resurrection. Mary Magdalene, when she finally recognized Jesus as he called her by name in the garden on Easter Sunday, rejoiced so much that she clung to his feet, never wanting to let him go. 
The disciples on the road to Emmaus, as soon as they had recognized Jesus in the breaking of the bread, ran seven miles uphill in pitch black darkness to share the joyful news of Jesus' resurrection with the other disciples. Even though the evangelists tell us that the disciples rejoiced when they eventually recognized that Jesus wasn't a ghost on Easter Sunday night, Peter still harbored his humiliation and was struggling to forgive himself for having been a spiritual Benedict Arnold. That's what Jesus wanted to address. As we see in the Sunday's Gospel, Jesus did it first through a miraculous catch of fish. Peter had gone back to what he knew well, probably to divert himself from his sorrow as well as to get some food. And the other disciples, however, worked all night and caught nothing. In the morning, a seeming stranger on the shore, whose appearance and it seems also his voice had changed after the resurrection, told them to cast the net onto the other side of the boat. They did, and caught an enormous draft of fish. That's when St. John, who was present on the Sea of Galilee, when Jesus originally called him and his brother James, Peter, and his brother Andrew, three years earlier, grasped that it was the Lord. That original scene of their calling is highly significant to the post-resurrection scene we encountered this week. Peter, Andrew, James, and John had on that previous occasion worked all night and caught nothing. They'd come in and clean their boats and nets, Peter had allowed Jesus to use his boat as a pulpit to move a little from the shore because the crowd was crushing him. After that favor, Jesus told Peter to put out into the deep water and lower his nets for a catch. Peter was almost certainly exhausted and ready to crash after having worked all night. Everything was clean, and Jesus' command was basically crazy. Fish were caught in the Sea of Galilee at night in shallow water. And this carpenter from Nazareth, a non-fisherman, was telling him to go out into deep water in broad daylight. After protesting his fatigue and frustration, however, Peter said, At your word I will lower the nets. He rode back out into deep water far from shore, lowered his nets, and caught such a miraculous draft of fish that the nets were about to break. When he finally hauled all the fish back to shore, he fell down at Jesus' feet and said, Depart from me, O Lord, for I'm a sinful man. And Jesus told him, Don't be afraid. From now on you will be fishing for men. Jesus, in recapitulating this miracle after the resurrection in the gospel we have this Sunday, was essentially telling Peter, who was still very much a sinful man and felt the ongoing sting of his sinful betrayal, that he still wanted Peter to be a fisher of men giving him confidence that if he did what the Lord said, he would bring in huge numbers of fish. The number 153 of fish caught in this Sunday's Gospel scene was not just an historical fact, but a richly symbolic number, because 153 were the number of nations known at the time of Jesus, as well as, coincidentally, the number of known species of fish. Jesus was basically indicating through the unbroken nets of 153 large fish that Peter and the others would catch every type of person in every nation on earth. The second way Jesus reconstituted Peter in his mission was, as we'll see, through the one-on-one dialogue after breakfast. Jesus didn't refer to his friend as Peter, the new name he had given him, because Peter felt anything other than a solid, firm rock, which is what Peter means. Jesus used his birth name, Simon, son of Jonah, and asked him, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Jesus wanted to give him three times to affirm his love to make up for the three times he had denied him. But in the Greek of St. John's Gospel, something much deeper is going on. 
When Jesus asks, do you love me more than these? The word Jesus uses for love is agapain. The same word he uses when he says, love one another as I have loved you. And no one has any greater love than to lay down his life for his friends. Agape means a total self-sacrificial type of love. The type of love Peter had promised he had for Jesus on Holy Thursday. A love willing to die for the one loved. Jesus now was asking Peter if he had that type of total love. But Peter, still wounded by the memory of his own weakness, wouldn't exercise what he must have deemed bravado once again. His weak flesh was too apparent to him. So when he replied, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, the word he used for love was not agapain, but philane, meaning the love between friends. In other words, he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you as a friend. So Jesus asked him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me with a total self-sacrificial love? And Peter replied, yes, Lord, you know that I love you as a friend. So Jesus, in his third approach, downgraded the level of commitment and said, Simon, son of John, do you love me with philia? Do you love me as a friend? And that's why Peter was stung. It was like he had betrayed the Lord again, that he couldn't even commit to loving him to the point of death. And so Peter replied, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you as a friend. But Jesus wasn't going to leave Peter there nursing his wounds. Jesus wanted to strengthen him for his mission. So he gave a powerful prophecy. Amen, amen, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to dress yourself and go where you wanted. But when you will grow old, you will stretch out your hands, an idiom that in Greek means to be crucified, and someone else will dress you and lead you to a place you don't want to go. That's why St. John commented, Jesus said this signifying by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. Even if Peter, in other words, out of shame was unwilling to promise he would die for Jesus again, Jesus was telling him he would in fact give his life out of love for Jesus. And so the Lord concluded the dialogue by saying the words he had said to Peter when he had first made him a fisher of men, follow me. And Peter, in fact, did follow the Lord all the way until his own crucifixion, upside down in the circus of Caligula and Nero in the ancient area of the Vatican in October of 64 AD. Like Peter, all of us have betrayed Jesus too, one way or the other. But Jesus doesn't give up on us either. Just like he reconstituted Peter in his vocation and mission, so Jesus wants always to reestablish us in our baptismal vocation and mission. He wants to engage us in a one-on-one -on -one conversation, which he does in prayer, especially in the one-on-one -on -one dialogue of the sacrament of penance, to give us a chance to ask for his forgiveness and to impart to us resurrection through reconciliation. Jesus wants to ask us by name, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than anything else? Do you love me with a total self-sacrificial type of love with which I love you? He wants to send us the Holy Spirit to instill in us the same gift of courage that he gave Peter on Pentecost wants to help us show our love for Jesus by the way that we cast our nets for others. That love for Jesus and for others is nourished at Mass. This Sunday, Jesus won't prepare a breakfast for us on the seashore of toast and fish. Rather, he will give us his body and blood under the appearance of bread and wine. He strengthens us from the inside to love others as he loves us first. He asks whether we love him and how we'll show it, whether we'll love others by that same standard, to do the Eucharist in his memory and make our life a commentary in the words of consecration. This Sunday, we have a chance to say, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you, with a total self-sacrificial agapic love.
As Jesus sends us out with his blessing as fishers of men to all nations and all types of human beings and seek to bring them all into the church's untearable net. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 